Welcome to Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate, the show that brings you illuminating interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders throughout all corners of the real estate sector. Each episode will feature different masters in real estate, revealing challenging lessons they've learned, their secrets to success, and opinions regarding the state of the market. This is Kelly Mangold, a principal at RCO Co Real Estate Advisors. If you're a regular listener to our podcast, then you know that since 1967, RCO Co has been the first call for real estate developers, investors, the public sector, and non real estate companies seeking strategic and tactical advice regarding property investment, planning, and development. Welcome to the latest episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate. Today, I am talking to Brian O'Looney, principal at Tortigala Partners, an award-winning architecture and planning firm headquartered in Washington, D.C. Founded in 1953, Tortigala is known for catalyzing community change through authentic placemaking. With a passion for architecture and urban design, Tortigala and Partners designs places and buildings that quietly transform cities, suburbs, and people. Their mission is to meet the needs of the present while planning for what's next. I'm excited to have this discussion with Brian today because Dorothy Goss is a longtime collaborator with RCLCO. Our two firms have worked together on many interesting transit-oriented developments, projects with innovative housing types, and other walkable urban mixed-use projects. Specifically, Brian has worked with RCLCO on a number of projects for Steiner, including Easton Town Center and The Green. More recently, RCLCO contributed to a book that Brian authored called Increments of Neighborhood, a compendium of built types for walkable and vibrant communities. I really enjoyed working on this book with Brian over the years. I'm excited to welcome him to our podcast series. Well, thank you, Kelly. I'm excited to have this opportunity to talk with you. Brian, you and I met when I was relatively new to RCLCO, maybe seven or eight years ago when you were still working on early drafts of the book. I was particularly interested in your quest to document and create a comprehensive collection of building types that incrementally make up successful walkable neighborhoods and communities. As an architect myself, I'd love to hear a brief description of your professional career trajectory and how you ended up in the role you have today as principal at Tortigala. In college, I was drawn to some very passionate teachers who led me and I landed a job. I grew up in Connecticut and went to college in Connecticut and started as an intern at Caesar Pelling Associates in New Haven and was exposed to a lot of amazing projects. And at the time, I had the really unique situation where I would walk, my classes were Monday through Wednesday, and I would go in on Friday, uh, go up to the lobby, go into the lobby, go up to the front desk, and the receptionist would say, oh my God, glad to see you. We need, we need you on this deadline uh, this weekend. And I would help on whatever the project was that had a, a big push for the coming week. And so I got exposed to a lot of really interesting projects that were in the office at the time. And this was the late 80s, early. And I worked on a bit of the World Financial Center, on the Bank of America Tower in Charlotte. I really got exposed to a lot of interesting projects. And more importantly, for my career trajectory, really well exposed to a very successful design, iterative design process. A process that Caesar outlined in his book, Observations for Young Architects, which I recommend for anyone who wants to become an architect. Great. Yeah, no, that sounds like you had some really great teaching from one of the masters. Did you always want to be an architect? Was this, you know, a childhood dream of yours? 
No, I, I wanted to be a car designer, but I felt I, I knew enough about my own personality to know that I I would get frustrated within the the corporate structure that creates the cars these days. It's a tough committee process that, you know, and when one designs by committee, often great results don't happen. And I just, the, the sort of high design era for automobiles I had thought had passed. And that wasn't quite true. I think there was some really amazing things that have happened in the last 10, 15 years, but um, that was not expected at that when, when I came out of school. Fascinating. Um, you know, I guess I can see the parallels between car design and architecture, but it seems like you found the right place for yourself. Um, when you and I talked earlier this week, we talked about how busy things have been for both of our companies. Um, the last year or two have been particularly busy for the real estate industry. What types of projects are you seeing these days that most excite you? Are there any new trends in the type of work that you are seeing coming in? Uh, yeah. So, so when I came came out of school, you know, for a person who was interested in car design, I actually ended up working in a world of making better pedestrian-oriented walkable places. And what I've seen the world move towards, and I think we all have, is investment happening in places where car-free or car alternate lifestyles can happen. And so we are doing a lot of work in core transit serve places, uh, as well as in suburban places that uh, try to make walkable nodes where you can park once and then get around and do lots of other kind of, you know, go from restaurant to shopping to entertainment venue. And even through the pandemic, that work hadn't slowed down. Everyone was expecting the pandemic to end, even though it's taken longer than we all thought. And because kinds of projects we work on take so long to happen, work we started at the beginning of the pandemic still has not finished up. A lot of them are just starting construction now. So changes we've seen really relate to retrofitting suburban communities with more walkable destinations. And so we're seeing a lot, you know, the, the big transformation now because of the pandemic, partly there's been a great rethink for retail destinations in particular and shopping malls. And they can be easily reborn simply by taking the parking lots and putting in structured parking. You can free up an awful lot of land. And we've done a number of plans where the standard mall format of the building surrounded by parking can accommodate 2,000 to 3,000 residential units in conventional wood wrap buildings. And we're seeing that kind of work be implemented in the DC market. There's a number of buildings that are built around the, the mall in Columbia. We are seeing work being done in projects we planned in Lombard, Illinois, and uh, to the north side of, of Chicago at the Hallburn Mall that's now starting construction. And uh, seeing malls become more 24-7 synergistic environments where it's not just a retail center you drive to, but there's also opportunities to actually stay and live and work in those places. And we are starting to see them become more vibrant downtowns for the places, the communities that engendered the, the malls to begin with. And then that, in many ways, was the original vision for the mall that got overly formulaic in the 70s and 80s. And uh, we're going back to the Gruen vision and the, the, the vision of malls that had more uses mixed into them as opposed to being a refined asset focused on the highest dollars per square foot, which ended up being a little, a little myopic in, in the worldview. And so we're seeing that change a lot in mall design, bringing back 
anchor supermarkets, which for a while were not a tenant that mall owners were looking to bring in. And now we're seeing mall owners wanting to bring in those higher brand supermarkets like Whole Foods or Wegmans to the mall, as well as other uses. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. And that really does parallel, you know, a lot of the work that we at RCL have been doing, you know, repurposing surface lots surrounding uh, malls. You know, I, as you were answering this question, I was thinking to myself, I wonder how childhood Brian would have felt about, you know, replacing all of this parking for his, you know, car designer self with other uses. <laughs> what factors um, have changed your business or career over the last 10 years? Um, how do you see those changes affecting your business in the future? Well, just building on what we were just talking about, I think a little bit has to do with our travel modes. And I think we're starting to reassess that, how we get from place to place. There's a longer view look at what autonomous vehicles will do for us. But, you know, it hasn't come yet, but we've started to realize that the privatized mobility has really hurt our public realm, particularly in the suburbs. And what and how it's hurt us the most is that we've been burdened with an awful lot of storage for vehicles that we're now trying to repurpose and, and make life out of. In terms of our business, I think the pandemic has had a big impact, not just on the design professions, but on all businesses, and particularly in terms of the relationship of white-collar workers with their employers. We've spent a, a year plus working from home, and most seasoned employees have now proven that they can deliver what's needed without having to go back to the office. And there's a lot of business owners like myself who really want to push to get our folks back into the office so we can see this synergistic growth and particularly help younger employees grow. I think that's been a challenge with this era of telecommunication. But for those more senior employees, I think there's going to be a disconnect between what us as business owners and managers hope to get from people coming back and what they've realized they can do and manage their private life at the same time and not have to commute an hour or so. And there's a big McKinsey report that talks to this a little bit. And I, and I, it's going to be interesting to see what happens over the next couple of years. I think some people will shift jobs to look for more life flexibility and more uh, work-life balance, bouncing more towards life. And so I think that's going to be a big change. I know that our architect brethren who do office work are really moving into uh, other kinds of uses like, like residential. And we're finding a number of our projects are office conversions. And and, and excited about that work. I think we can take those deeper 100-foot office buildings and we have some really good unit types that we use to reach the core and extract a good value for residential living out of well-built office assets that have more construction life that they can deliver out of the construction but aren't going to be well used as an as a, as a workplace. And so we, we're, we're, we're repurposing buildings here in Montgomery County and in Tyson's Corner, as well as a few in, elsewhere in the country into active residential properties. I know that's really interesting. I do think, you know, the question of what is office employment going to look like in the future, to what extent are people going to go back is certainly one that we've been grappling with as well. And, you know, the idea of repurposing the space certainly makes sense. Architecture is evolving a bit. And particularly with multifamily, I think the offerings are going to broaden because of what it comes in from the office world. But in what's getting built new, the world has gotten really refined and efficient. And you know the, the kinds of variety that used to get delivered in the 70s and 80s aren't getting built anymore. And there's a real institutional influence on the kinds of multifamily that's getting built by merchant builder developers. I mean, they're typically building the same four to five story stick type five, type three buildings. 
with fiber cement facades and vinyl windows. And the investment community, that's what they're expecting their return from. And that's creating a, a lot of very similar kinds of buildings uh, across the country that they're now, there's a little bit of a, of a pushback on because of very specific budgetary assumptions, efficient construction practices, and the, just the real driver being the IBC code constraints. And so I see the biggest changes in the building industry coming from code changes. And in particular, the change coming in 2021 codes that are out now, where type four construction, sort of post and beam wood or glue lamb beams, can be built to much greater heights. And I think that's going to shake up the construction world a little bit. Yeah, I know, definitely. I think you know, it'll be exciting to see how that allows you know the, the built form, as you mentioned, to maybe evolve and change a bit. You know, we've become used to seeing. So outside of architecture and design, what are some of the things that are important to you in your life? Well, I mean, we've been locked down for a year plus, and you know, it's actually been good for strengthening our home life here. I have uh, two children, and, and they were at a good age for the pandemic. Not so young that they required constant tending, but not so old that they were balking against the the, the constraints of being this, uh, stuck at home. And so, luckily, um, my son plays baseball, and we were, and, and that is generally seen as a pandemic safe activity. Lots of social distancing involved for the most part, unless you're a catcher and hitter. But even then, uh, the, the games are going on. And it's interesting that Montgomery County had shut down here in outside of DC uh, for one season baseball. And because of that, we might move my son to a team in Howard County. And so that created traveling a lot, traveling now 35, 45 minutes for games, uh, sometimes an hour. And so a lot of time in the car with our kids. And, and that's you know a good time to capture before you're sometimes reticent teenagers to communicate with you. And so that's been, for us, at least a positive aspect of this, but I can't wait till it's over so we can get out and travel again. We just found out that my wife's college is going to have their, is going to restart reunions again in the spring. And we plan on traveling for that for sure. And uh, looking forward to us getting over the hump. And hopefully uh, once the young kids are able to get vaccinated, we'll start to lose a lot of the restrictions that uh, I think will really grow both our ability to work as well as our ability to socialize more. Yeah, definitely. I, I feel some of those things about, you know, waiting for vaccination and being excited to travel again. So you know, hopefully that's on the horizon. So it would be great to discuss your book a little bit. First of all, what is it that inspired you to write Increments of Neighborhood on top of all your other personal and professional obligations? It's been something I was thinking about for a while. And I actually left, 20 years ago, left the firm I was at, which did some very high-end institutional work and some very interesting new downtown developments. And in fact, went to that firm to work at a university building where I went to college. And at the same time, I got to work on a baseball stadium, which is a lot of architects' dreams job. And I had a wonderful time doing that. But what I found that I loved doing was building a new downtown for a town outside of Dallas uh, called Southlake. And when that center opened, they threw a parade. It was it was really wonderful, you know, to finish a project and get received like that. And so I felt like I wanted to keep doing that kind of work. And so I joined the firm I'm at now, Tordy Gallus, in order to help because I saw an opportunity to do more of that kind of work. I've now we're now on five or six parades for projects that we've opened up from you know, from communities that have seen, you know, where we've made a place that has 
brought the community together and to, to come together. And that's been, been great. And so there wasn't a resource out there that compiled the kind of types that make these great destinations that contribute to great neighborhoods that I love, like Short North in Columbus or Lincoln Park in Chicago or... You know, you can just name your neighborhoods, you know, Asbury, Asbury in San Francisco. I mean, neighborhoods that you, 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 you go to and you just you enjoy being in, you like walking around, you're, you, you turn a corner and you always, you know, a potential for something new and from being introduced to some kind of new retail experience or uh, opportunity. And there just wasn't a resource that brought all that together. And there was a lot of talk about missing middle types. But most of that focus had been on residential. And my residential is a key anchor for community growth and for the majority of the types within the book. We wanted to broaden the conversation to include the kind of flexible mixed-use types like doctor's offices and community cafes and neighborhood retail that really help to provide the vibrancy and opportunity in the charming places I enjoy. And so this book broadened to include those. I was working with a different publisher when we started, and they said, well, you know, you're almost there. You might as well add all the civic types, too, and mobility types. And so we had to add another three or four years just adding those types to the overall volume. So it became really a broad resource. And we really wanted a resource to help those who love you know, older historic towns that once had a vibrant core, but for some reason or another had fallen on hard times. And for me, where I grew up in Connecticut, that evokes the character of either New Britain or, or Meriden, Connecticut. And I've been fortunate enough to, to have done a project now in Meriden. And there are lots of places with really great infrastructure that have a lot of holes in them that could use a little more reinvestment. And now I've been fortunate to travel the country and I think of places like Denison, Texas or Oklahoma City or Holyoke, Massachusetts. And, and they're all, they're, they, you know, they're, you can see the great community that had once existed and now there are missing teeth in the urbanism, you know, places that could use a little energy uh, and, and a little more life brought into them. And so the book has the types for those interested in figuring out how to bring back a, a city block. At the same time, it's also a good resource for developers who are looking to figure out what the right, what the highest and best use for, for a project is. And we, we actually have helped, you know, developed with you, you all at RCLCO, you know, figured out metrics on each of the types in terms of how, uh, you know, how, you know, how to think about them in, in terms of performance. So it allows an advanced person a person who's seasoned in their field to see what others have done out there and, and use that within their work. I mean, the, the, the interesting thing about the practice of architecture and development, uh, and most people don't realize this, and particularly architects, and my, Torty House is an unusual firm in that our breadth is quite wide. We do everything from single family homes and neighborhoods to high rise towers. Uh, but most firms really specialize in either single family homes or towers or hospitals or prisons and, and developers are the same. And so by having a resource that compiles all that into one place, our, our developer can look a little beyond what their uh, comfort zone is to find what's exactly right for the, the potential project at hand. And so having a resource that allowed for that was uh, part of what we tried to put together. Um, so it was it was tough because the audience was very broad. We both wanted to appeal to, uh, you know, have it as an introductory survey for 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 young students, but also 
have that hard data and statistics that would be of value to uh, a developer that's worked for 30 years. Yeah, no, that's definitely a challenge to make it appeal to everyone, but yeah, I think you've done just that. So this book was published right before the pandemic hit. I think, in fact, we went to lunch and you brought us the hard copies on the last day we were in the office before things were shut down. So in the past year and a half, what has been the feedback that you guys have gotten from readers now that it's been published? Got great feedback. I mean, it's just, and I actually wish we'd get more critical feedback. I've got my own criticism for the book, things I want to hopefully update. It's been selling well, so we'll probably have a second edition, which is exciting. And one thing that people have brought to our attention are other types that we can celebrate in the next volume, things that have been done, some things that have stretched the code even to the nth limit on a particular regulation here or there that allowed for a new type to get built. I'm particularly thinking of one building in Philadelphia where the stair on the inside is exactly the maximum length of travel distance that's allowed under the code. And uh, But someone came up with a really unique type that worked off that that we'll probably put in the next volume. There's some interesting three unit types that we've seen out there. We have a project I'm doing in Somerville, New Jersey, where Pulte has done a project that we've worked on them a little bit which is a one and a half story unit over another one and a half story unit. And that can be built theoretically under the IRC, which is unusual uh, as opposed to the IBC. And so we'd like to, we'll, we'll certainly put that in the, in the next book or the next version of the book. Given the untimely release date, you know, right as the pandemic hit, uh, you know, we haven't been able to enjoy the benefits of a book tour or book release party to get the world word out. But we've had a lot of great, uh, word of mouth. And it's been great watching sales spike at the beginning of the academic season. So last year in the spring, there the, a few courses that taken it on as a uh, textbook. And now the fall, we've seen another bump at the beginning of the year. And, and so that's great. So I'm, I'm, I'm seeing, we're seeing it being used as a resource. And that was one of our, our, our goals in putting it together. But yeah, I mean, I, I think there's been a, a little, uh, you know, we're going to try to add some more metrics in the, in the next edition to help it um, to broaden its appeal. And we'll see. But generally, it's been very, we, we, we've just gotten great positive response. Great. Well, that's good to hear. I'm glad that, you know, there's been good responses. And it's great to see that, you know, some universities are also putting this in their curriculum. So I do have to ask, because this is a database of project types, do you have any favorite or maybe, if you mentioned some unique ones, are there any maybe favorite or overlooked types in your book that we should think about? What I'm, ha- I'm proudest of celebrating in the book are the really unusual mixed-use types because I think there's a lot of fear in developing mixed-use. People like to do what they're comfortable doing. And so for years, they're home builders and they just cranked out the single-family homes and it's you know hard to get them to think of a new product. When we work with multifamily developers who have their way of doing things, you know, we try to introduce even a new unit type or two to their mix. It, it sometimes is a challenge. And so putting out there a resource that talks, talks about these potentially scary mixed types and demystifying them, it was gratifying. And so or particularly there's some types that I think can come back, particularly lower scaled mixed use where you might have a shop front on the ground floor. There was a, you know, a lot of buzz 10, 15 years ago about live work units. I, what I was excited to celebrate was sort of a, an evolution of that where you create these buildings that maximize the potential of the building code 
for the size, but allow for a ground floor that's flexible. And so you can have one 6,000 square foot tenant or three or, or four 1,500 square foot tenants in one space. And flexibility in building type is key to success in retail. And that's why strip centers are act the way they do. Uh, but they're typically built to a more expensive, higher construction type with a steel and bar joist. Whereas these light wood buildings still have that flexibility and so are able to you know, meet the needs of the market and, and change as retail formats adjust uh, over time. And so putting those in the book, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about, particularly the ones that have townhouse types and residential above that. A lot of people don't realize that there is an exception. There are exceptions in the accessibility code where you don't necessarily need an elevator. One exception is where you have uh, less than four units. You can do buildings that have three units. And so we show some types in the book that have retail on the ground floor and units above without elevators because they're less than four units. Another exception that others that architects have taken advantage of in the fair housing and accessibility codes is the notion that multi-story units don't need an elevator. So if you have a, a ground floor building of retail and every unit above that is a townhouse type, so it's two stories, that also has been built in the marketplace uh, successfully without an elevator. And so that's a cost-effective type that can make a great corner building or, or serve the retail needs of an otherwise mostly single-family neighborhood. And, and you see those kinds of buildings in older neighborhoods, again, like Short North or I'm thinking of the, like in Philadelphia, you'll, you'll see buildings like that typically at the end grain of blocks. They get bigger, but the grain of the, of the middle portion of the blocks tends to be uh, single-family uh, or, or townhouses. But, and, but these kinds of buildings used to get built, but I think we both performed ourselves and code-wise uh, shied away from those kind of types. And so we're most proud of celebrating those. And then also celebrating at the, the other end of intensity, these building types where people are putting in large format retailers in a way that still has, has a nice street presence. So they might put you know, a Target or a, a large supermarket on a, a second floor over smaller mom and pops and parking on the ground floor. And those smaller mom and pops all have doors on the street. It makes a great walkable frontage where, but you still have that community resource of that large grocer or, or the Target. And, you know, that we've seen those kinds of buildings proliferate. Uh, there's one in, in Northern Liberties in Philadelphia. We've done one in Georgetown in my firm. There's one in Columbia Heights in DC, uh, like that. And, uh, in Harlem, Harlem, USA, DC, USA are large format users at the upper floors and, and small users in the ground floor. There's one really intensive project in Vancouver where there's a supermarket, a Home Depot over smaller retails on the ground floor with a townhouse neighborhood on the top of it. And we put that in the book too, because it's very complex. Similarly, there's a Walmart in DC that got built. And again, it has a residential neighborhood on top of the Walmart, but it's designed in a way where the, you know, the, there's not a lot of blank walls at the ground floor and the parking doesn't displace, you know, the storage use of parking doesn't displace active street frontages. So those, I'm, I'm happy about showing those so that others can emulate. You know, you're just doing a great job of describing these, but just so listeners know, you know, in the book, there are, you know, great plans and images and lots more detail about all the types that Brian's discussing. So, Brian, thank you so much for sharing insights from your many years of experience as an architect 
and also some highlights from your book, Increments of Neighborhood. For listeners who are interested, we've included a link to the book in the episode notes, or you can search for it on Amazon. Brian, thank you again for being with us here today. Well, thank you. Enjoyed this conversation. Appreciate it. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate. If you are interested in learning more about RCLCO, go to rclco.com and follow us on Twitter at RCLCO. Don't forget to subscribe to new episodes of the podcast and make sure to leave us a rating on iTunes. Thanks for tuning into the show.